This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Hi and welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name is Louise and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First we'll talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help. Then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who is an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guests to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Thanks, Louise. Uh, My name is Gary and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting for our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Thanks, Gary. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you are an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places – prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism. The alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is it is an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet, because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to pick up the first drink. And this is what makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who has just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. 
We're just about to interview an AA member who is going to share their experience with alcoholism. So Gary, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you here. Would you like to introduce yourselves and um, uh, tell us a little bit more about who you are? Thanks, Louise. Uh, my name is Gary, recovering alcoholic. Welcome. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's an interesting journey that I've had over the years. And um, I was listening to what you were reading there, and I can relate so much to it, mm. uh, Louise. Um, Do you want to I, just tell us how long? What you know? How long have you been sober? Well. That's a, that's a good one. I, I have I've been sober and clean now only a few weeks mm-hmm. due to the fact that I got to obituates and I got addicted to them when I was in hospital due to um, uh, lesions on the, on the lungs and a blood mm-hmm. clot. And um, my sponsor suggested that I take my sobriety date back mm. um, to, um, to the date that I stopped using obituates. And that's being honest. And it's an honest program. So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm clean. Uh, and sober mm-hmm. today, mm-hmm. and that's all I've got in front of me is today. Mm, okay. I've, had, I've had a series of sobrieties, but I've been two and a half years, 18 months. Yep. Um, I've been sticking to this program. I always keep bouncing back. My sponsor said to me, you're like a bungee jumper. You always bounce back, but one day the rope is going to break. Mm, mm. Thank you for sharing that with us, Gary. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about your home life, your personal life. Yeah, my home life, I was brought up in a very loving family, you know, and I used to hate sharing that because I, I hear people hear these mm. stories. And I had three brothers um, and mum and dad, I've never heard them fight, they never argued, and just they did it behind closed doors. I grew up without wanting for anything. Yeah, we lived a very um, simple life. When I say simple, we had a, mum and dad had a veggie garden, so we were mm-hmm. brought up in the good old days. Um, but I always knew I was different from my three brothers. I always mm. felt as I didn't fit in. You know, and it was, um, for me, it was, um, it didn't feel right. I was shy, even though I could come out and say things. I was just trying to be like my mates and mm. trying to fit in. But I just, mm. like a, a round peg in a square hole, I just mm. didn't fit. Mm. Okay. And so tell us, uh, you know, when did you start drinking and, and how old were you? I, was, I started drinking at the age of 15. And it all kicked off when a friend of mine, I've been working for the last nine months since I turned 15, and uh, we decided to go to a nightclub in the city here. And um, so we got this old guy to buy us two bottles of apple cider. To show you how old I am, it was 50 cents a bottle in those days. <laughs> and um, so we bought two, and um, we gave the guy the dollar, and um, <laughs> we went to this nightclub. And some of the old generation might remember it. It was called Monaco's. It was in the city there. And I drank my, my bottle down pretty quickly. Mm. And that's how I've always done things, even mm. before I started drinking. Um, everything had to be done now. And I felt this effect. I felt this wonderful effect. That I found a solution to my problem of being mm. shy, alcohol. And I was absolutely gobsmacked. My friend had trouble breaking his bottle down. He was only <laughs> halfway through it, so I drank his. <laughs> And um, off we went to the nightclub and all these lovely ladies up there. And I was so, oh, confidence was oozing out of me. Anyway, to, to, to cut to the chase, I asked one to dance and I didn't feel that great and vomited all over it. <laughs> so um, as you can probably appreciate, I was kicked out of the nightclub and banned <laughs> for six months. That was my first. But I started from, from there. And I have to be honest, through my, through my early years of drinking, I had a good job. Mm-hmm. I was holding down, had good friends then. I was drinking regularly, but I knew that, that I had to keep drinking. And mm. it wasn't to, wasn't to get drunk in the end. It was really just to, to get wasted 
to R- forget about. Right. Yep. Okay. So that's how your drinking progressed. Yes, exactly. And so in your early adulthood, um, it was so. It was a so well, you were a social drinker. Yes. And um, binge drinker. Yes. And a daily drinker. Not a daily drinker. Binge drinker. Okay. You know, I had to work and I had to be responsible. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember going to my first meeting twenty six years ago. Okay. And it was St Barnabas. And I remember this clear as yesterday. And I walked in there and I was in a three-piece suit. I had a staff of South Island manager for a major corporation. I had 26 staff, as I just said. And I also had a company credit card. And I was the, I was the man. Yeah. I walked in there and um, I sat there and I looked around these people gleaming and smiling. I thought, what a bunch of losers. That was my first reaction. But I always knew I was scared because some part of me felt as I belonged, but I blocked it out initially. And I remember this dear old lady uh, who came up to me at the end of the meeting and said, how'd you enjoy it? And I said, well, I can make this as a business and make it run effectively for you. I was crazy. <laughs> I didn't know what AA was all about. And she patted me on the head and said, keep coming back, Sonny. I didn't come back to my next meeting for 16 years later. Right. I didn't have the three-piece suit. Mm. I didn't have the company credit card. I had a job, but I certainly didn't. And this illness progressively got worse. So let's talk a little bit about that. Firstly, how did you get to your first meeting 26 years ago? Well, that, <laughs> that's a good... I went to my brother's wedding in Cardiff in Wales and I was representing the family and um, I decided to go and have a drink. So I bought a bottle of bourbon. The next thing I know is someone pushing me and pushing me. I'd fallen asleep on the loo with an empty bottle of bourbon and the wedding was over. Wow. And um, so... When I got back, um, I wasn't my brother's favourite person at that, st- at that time. I was suggested to go and see a doctor. Wow. And a family doctor suggested I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason why I chose St Barnabas, because I was a snob. I wasn't going to go to the east side of town. I was <laughs> going to go to Ben Dalton because that's where I belonged. And this is, this is how the ego. Uh, I suddenly realised this is a disease of the mind, but I didn't realise that until later on. But mm. for this alcoholic... I decided to go and do that meeting. Mm. That's how I got to my first meeting. And so you went back out for 16 years. So tell us, you know, what happened during that period and and some of the consequences as a result of your drinking. Okay. There were some sad things. It took me years later to get over the death of my daughter. Um, At the time I was married, um, my... um, we gave, my wife gave birth to a little girl. I was on a binge. And, of course, in those days, we didn't have cell phones. Mm. And um, I was got I was on a binge, and I didn't wake up for four days. My daughter had died, and um, uh, we separated a year later because wow. my drinking got worse and worse, and I just you know, didn't get help for that solution, for the problem, rather. And that was one of my triggers. But I still used it as an excuse. Mm. Mm. And um, I lost relationships, my mm-hmm. family, uh, to be in Indian. I still had a job. I never lost a job over mm. this. I had to work to feed my addiction. I was, I was a binge drinker. I'd wake up and, in a, <coughs> excuse me, I'd wake up and uh, I was in bed sets and I was getting kicked out of there because I was stealing people's money. I was stealing people's booze out of the fridge. Mm. So I went from um, bed set to bed set. And I had this grandiosa um, thing and um, I'd wake up. I'd go and buy two bottles of vodka. By then I was drinking it neat because it didn't have the same effect with lemonade in it. Wow. Um, all I wanted to do was get out of it. So I worked four days a week, 10 hours a day. Um, and I'd wake up for three bottles of 
vodka. So I must have gone through during over the weekend sometime and got the third bottle. There were three empty bottles lying next to me. My, 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 it, it, it just got worse and worse. What was that doing to your, you know, not only your mental state, but your physical state? Physical, I ended up with pancreatitis. Um, I'm free of that now, of course, but I ended up with that. I ended up with being in hospital several times. Mm-hmm. I didn't care, though. Um, the, the, the alcohol is only a symptom. Mm. It's a disease of the mm. mind, as you read out before. And my mm. mind keeps saying to you, this, this addiction keeps mm. saying to me, or the disease, you need to drink. Mm. You need to drink. And what about, um, so, you, you know, you mentioned you lost, fa- you know, relationships, family, yes. um, friends. What about, was there any implications with the law? Yes, I had three drink driving charges um, initially. Then I went on to have another three in a decade. I spent uh, a couple of small stints in prison. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and when I came out, it didn't worry me. At- you know. Ian, this is exactly my next question. Was any of that enough for you to think, No, I have a problem, I have to stop? Or was it, I have a problem, I don't want to stop? I had a problem, I didn't really want to stop. Mm. And this disease kept on getting worse and worse. Whilst I didn't have any more contacts of the law, because I wasn't able to drive, mm. um, I... I just just decided that I was going to drink. I just wanted to die, to be quite honest. Mm, mm. I was hoping the disease would take me. I didn't have to wake up. Because every time I woke up, I thought, well, who did I ring last night? What did mm, I do last mm. night? In fact, just a, on a lighter side, a set of golf clubs arrived on my back doorstep. I had this grandiosa uh, one night that I was going to be a professional golfer. So I used <laughs> my credit card and ordered them from America. And it cost me a 1000 New Zealand dollars. <laughs> I've still got the golf clubs today. And um, I play occasionally, not very well, but it's, uh, it is a reminder uh, for this alcoholic. So describe what, you know, what was your rock bottom that brought you back into... Okay. The room 16 years later. I was um, 20 months up and um, my sponsor at the time, um, he discarded me and it was fair enough. But then I decided I had enough and I had a big binge and I was secretary of a certain meeting. So I booked a motel right opposite there and I got wasted, absolutely wasted. All I remember is waking up the next day in hospital and there's this guy sitting on the edge of my bed said, have you had enough, Gary? And I just, I, if he asked me to jump, I would have asked him how high do you want me to jump. I had reached that, that desperation point mm-hmm. where I'd had enough. I couldn't do this anymore, but I needed help. And it's the first time in my drinking career that I admitted, accepted, should I say mm. is a better word, that I needed help with my drinking. And so what brought you back into their rooms before that, you know, that, that particular event? Um, I, I glossed over it. I came back into AA and I did the steps, but I didn't do it properly. Mm-hmm. And the steps are a way of living. So I'll tell you about it later. But I, I glossed my way over it. I bullshitted my way, excuse my French. Um, and I stayed sober, though. Mm-hmm. Physically, I was well. Mentally, I was very still mm-hmm. unwell. But I stayed sober, and I couldn't figure out why I felt like this. Mm. And then the relapse occurred. Mm. And I had three or four relapses after that before I finally realized that, yeah, yeah. And that must have been hard. So coming back into the rooms, what were the people like? 
I, I was, my feelings were, that was quite the opposite of what I was thinking. I, I thought they're going to look at me and say, look, he's back. You know, this is the head talking again. And I thought to myself, I can't go back in there, but I was so desperate. And I burst into tears after. I really got started to get honest with myself. Mm. And I started to share what, what, what was going on with me. And I was, but I was more scared of what people would think of me. Mm. But all I got was people coming up to me and saying, well done, thanks for coming back. You just proved that this program does work. And I never got that initially. But for, for this alcoholic, um, I had to get honest. Mm. And this particular sponsor took me through the steps. And it was hard work. It just, really, it was hard. And when I rang when I did step four, um, and he said, how'd you go? I said, terrible. I said, I burst into tears. I, I said to him, and I had to put these things down. He says, good. good. I said, what? In fact, I, I didn't say it to him. I thought, you rotten bugger. <laughs> you know, what a thing to do to someone. And then I realized what he'd done. And he said to me, but you said that it was easy, Gary. It was good. I would have said, go back and redo them. Mm, mm. So I had a wonderful sponsor at the time. And so we talk about, um, you know, sponsorship, service yes. um, as part of our, as being such an important part of our, our journey. Tell, tell us a little bit more about that for you. Yeah, service is a very important part for this alcoholic. For me, it is. Um, I do around seven beatings a week, mm. um, but that's my choice. Mm. I have a, a nice group of close friends, mm-hmm. friends. In fact, we've got a dinner night tonight. It's a... I organise a dinner every four to five weeks mm-hmm. for this group. There's 16 of us going tonight. Um, and that's the beauty about it. It says anyone, anywhere reaches out for help. It doesn't mm. mean another alcoholic. You can go next door and mow the, mm. the old guy's lawns if you can't mow his lawns. You go out and help someone. Mm. And that, to me, it's not about ego. It's about getting something. I feel better about myself that I've helped someone, and I didn't want anything in return. Mm. Mm. And for me, doing service uh, is a very important part of this, this, this program. Mm. Um, honesty, being rigorously, and that says it in that big mm. book, being rigorously honest. Mm. I'm 99% honest. I, if I was 100%, I'd be perfect, and mm. I'm certainly not perfect. We are not saints. <laughs> and tell us about um, sponsorship. What, what's sponsorship been like for you? I, I had once, I had to, I've got a sponsor now, of course. I had that sponsor who got me through the steps um, when I went out and, and um, relapsed again. He um, said, I suggest you find another sponsor. Mm-hmm. That, that's because it affected him as well. Mm. And I came in and out of his rooms off and on for a wee while after that. But then I, I, I just reached that point where I had enough again. Mm. So I only do what's in front of me today. One thing I'd like to say, my sponsor who, who put, put me, took me through the steps said to me, the steps is like driving a car. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you get into the car and everything's unfamiliar. So you change gears, you're conscious of the indication, you're conscious of this. And he said, after a while, it becomes automatic. Mm. It's like the steps. If they're done well, if you're truly, truly and rigorously honest, they automatically come to mind, like the three-thought process. Usually the third thought is the wrong thing to say. The second thing is the pause. And the third is the thought, the second mm. thought, which say, is it really worth it? Or do I have to retaliate? Do I have to say anything? Mm. So I practice that a lot of my life. Sometimes it doesn't work, and that's because I'm, I'm not perfect. Um, and yeah. we are so lucky to have these things as part of. We are indeed. You know all of our affairs. So tell us, you know, describe yourself and your life today. Gosh, I I wouldn't swap um, what I've got today for nothing. And as a good 
close friend of mine who stuck through me through um, stuck with me rather through um, all ups and downs and 27 years we've known each other 26 years sorry be 20 in our 27th year now and uh, he every time I, I fell over he was there he never judged me mm. in fact all my close friends in this fellowship have never judged me mm. I have respect today because I've earned it mm-hmm. um, and uh, my life today is is beyond my wildest dreams. I've heard that said, in, and I used to I used to look at that person and <laughs> say it, and I think you're crazy. How can be only wildest dreams? I mean, I still have to live life in daily terms. Mm. I have a license. I have a car. Mm. Um, I have my own place. It's, it's rented, but it's uh, it's with a, a charitable trust. Um, yeah, I I just can't, you know. I'm I'm off to a meeting after I finish here today, and um, we're going out for for brunch afterwards. We're going to a big dinner tonight. But my life is, I know I'm only one day from a, from a drink, but that first drink wouldn't be enough. As you quite rightly read out, a thousand drinks still wouldn't be enough. Mm-hmm. But as I get told by this close friend of mine, it doesn't matter how bad life gets, and it's we're living life out there in real terms. Mm-hmm. Bad, it's not worth picking up that first drink, mm-hmm. and it's not. I've mm-hmm. learnt the hard. It's taken me years. I'm a bit thick. You know, um, <laughs> like a lot of our alcoholics, my story is, is, is my story, and that's it, you know. But I am grateful to that, and I'd like to say this, that I accept who I am and what I am. And acceptance and gratitude go hand in hand. And I've learned the word trudging. I used to think trudging was, <laughs> oh, poor me. Trudging is the joys of walking each day. In this fellowship. With purpose. Mm. A purpose. I right. Absolutely. I, know, I, I feel the same. And um, um, now one, one thing we talk a lot about in AA is that it is a spiritual program, not a religious <clears throat> program. What does that look like for you? Well, if I can just go back a wee bit. I used to go to my daughter's. Um, she was um, cremated out at the um, uh, crematorium. She's in the Peter Pan section out at John's Road. I, I used to go out there and put a bottle of vodka and sit there and cry my eyes out. Mm. And the police would come on. I'd got to know me now. Put me in the booze tank and sober me up and send me home. Fast track. I went to counselling about four years ago. And sometimes we have to go outside AA to mm. seek professional help. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't dealt with the death of my daughter. I felt guilt and remorse not being there with my wife at the time. Um, what I learned from that is I go out, I would go every Christmas now out to my, my daughter's grave. My parents are out there. I just didn't have a chat to her. The thing when I found God of my understanding, and I used to look at that word God, I thought this is a religious program. It's mm-hmm. not. It's a spiritual program. You can have a tree. You can have a cat. Mm-hmm. You can have a dog. It doesn't really matter um, because if you don't have spirituality, nothing else will work. Mm-hmm. You'll still be blocked because it is a disease of the mind. So for me, having a belief in a power greater than me, mm. I have certain readings I do every morning, mm. and at night I thank God for getting me through today. I also thank Him for not picking up that first drink, mm. Mm. the nice. twenty-four hours, and it's doing what, what's in my, what's in here today, is in front of me. I don't think about tomorrow. Sometimes, um, and I've just, I've deviated a bit. The past used to be one of my biggest. Mm. Um, trigger points mm. I go back in the past as my sponsor said there's nothing wrong with going back into the past but don't live there I used to live there and think mm. oh well pff, damn we'll go another drink mm. so today I don't have to do that mm. Mm. wonderful so Gary what would you suggest to you know any listeners that think they might have a drinking problem you know what are some of the things that they could ask themselves to help them decide I, I would suggest um 
to help, you know, if you're confused about some of the things I've said, or if you're confused about, am I, have I got a drinking problem or haven't I? I would say, go to a meeting or ring up the 0800 number. Mm-hmm. And we do have an 0800 number there. And go along and, and listen and see if there's any similarities mm. to what you're going through. And then um, talk to people who are in recovery. Mm. But I would strongly suggest that going to a meeting, if you have that that um, issue that you're feeling that you're something wrong, you're doing silly things or whatever, life's not good, um, and you're thinking it may, it's, always, it's always everyone else's fault, never yours. That's what I used to think. Um, and that's how, you know, similarities. And I would strongly suggest um, whether you go to our own home number and discuss it with someone on the phone or um, just go into a meeting. Mm. I felt nervous at my first meeting, but I've, I had that ego to get me through it. Mm. And sit and listen. Well, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story with us. Thanks for having me, Louise. It's been wonderful. For our listeners, if you've related to anything that you've heard or would like some more information, as Gary just said, about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up on the web at aa.org.nz or call us on the 0800 number 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear from more AA members sharing their experiences. Our show airs every Monday at 5.30pm on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past shows on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thank you for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business. But if you do want to stop, we can help. You don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with the serenity prayer as we do in every AA meeting. God, God, grant grant me the the serenity serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. You have been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9.